Welcome to When We Talk About Animals, a Yale University podcast devoted to exploring the big questions animals raise about what it means to be human. I'm Viveka Morris. And I'm Lindsay Stern. We're your hosts, and we're very excited about the interview we're bringing you today about the environmental applications of CRISPR-Cas9 and newly developed gene editing techniques, technologies that have the extraordinary potential to end malaria or to suppress Lyme disease, but also to change or delete entire species and to transform life in previously unimaginable ways. CRISPR is a complex issue. It's scientifically complex, and it's ecologically complex, and it's ethically complex. And it's a really interesting issue, too, because, as our guest today has written, to think clearly about it forces us, in many ways, to define who we are, to define what matters to us, and to reconsider how far our human knowledge of nature's interconnectedness extends. With this as the backdrop, our guest today is asking the big question, what role should humans play in editing nature? Dr. Natalie Koffler is a leading thinker about the potential environmental applications of gene editing technologies. Dr. Koffler is a molecular biologist and the founder and director of Yale University's Editing Nature Initiative. The Editing Nature Initiative works to explore the potential environmental applications of newly developed and developing gene editing technologies to promote public engagement around their use and to strengthen the regulatory process to ensure these technologies are used responsibly. Dr. Koffler regularly speaks on these topics before international audiences, ranging from the United Nations to the National Geographic Society, has chaired international seminars and summits, and guest lectures at Yale and MIT. She is also the author of numerous scientific research papers, most recently as the lead author on a paper published in Science Magazine entitled Editing Nature, Local Roots of Global Governance. Dr. Koffler, welcome to When We Talk About Animals. Thank you. To start off, both for Lindsay and my benefit and for listeners, could you describe what CRISPR is? (laughs) Yes. Um, So, you know, CRISPR is sort of being touted as this transformative genetic technology um, in that it's allowed for genetic engineering to become very precise, relatively inexpensive, and easy to use. So historically, when we talk about um, genetically modifying an organism, this was normally quite a time and costly um, procedure. And it oftentimes resulted in large swaths of DNA being changed in in the process. CRISPR has been sort of um, referred to as almost like um, the scalpel of gene genetic technologies. So using just two components, what's called a guide RNA and an enzyme, often Cas9, it can go to a specific portion of a DNA in any organism, cut that DNA, and make a change that DNA literally to the single nucleotide level. And so that precision is very unique and important in a way to sort of harness genetic sequences in an entirely new method. Um, it's also very inexpensive. So a guide RNA literally costs about $20 online. Um, Cas9 is a recombinant protein that is also quite similarly inexpensive. Um, And so that's also lowering the bar on how we can use genetic technologies in ways um, that may previously have been cross-prohibitive. What do you think people most often misunderstand about CRISPR? Like there was this Fox article recently with the headline, Sketchy Genetic Engineering Practices Could Spell the End of the World as We Know It. (laughs) Um, So I think one thing that is happening right now is that it is a bit of a double-edged sword is the ease of use and its accessibility. So there are fears that um, because it is so easy to use and because it isn't expensive, um, yes, it could be used to to do amazing things like cure hereditary diseases, um, conquer sort of cancer cells, but at the same time, it could get in the wrong hands and be used um, to create viral bioweapons um, or just be irresponsibly sort of um, uh, dealt with. And so I think there's a real fear there. Um, Also, um, the precision of it is allowing sort of new therapies in human disease to to develop in some ways that are very exciting. So if you have um, a single cell mutation, for example, um, that causes sickle cell disease, there's now experiments being done um, almost in clinical trial, actually, to be able to repair that in the 
blood of patients of sickle cell disease and effectively treat patients quite effectively with that. Um, but at the same time, people also are talking about using these same technologies in the embryos of humans that have yet to be born. Um, and their fears arise about um, changing the human gene pool, leading into, you know, stories about designer babies, um, creating, you know, these sort of ideal traits that could then lead into issues around eugenics. And so I think there's, you know, there's fear and excitement um, sort of hand in hand with these technologies. Where did CRISPR come from? I know it's often referred to as a natural phenomenon yeah. or as the bacteria's immune system. Yeah. But where did it come from in nature? And also, where has it come from in the last few years into public consciousness and in, yeah. in a lab setting? Well, it, I mean, I think CRISPR is actually really cool because it is um, this conserved mechanism in bacteria and another microorganism called archaea. Um, and basically, they use it as immune system. So um, they, if a bacteria is infected by a virus... Um, they're able to record that viral DNA within their own genome of the bacteria. And then if they are then infected again, they can find that viral DNA by expressing, like I said, these guide RNAs and then expressing Cas9 to go chop up the DNA of that virus. And so it basically fights off viral infection. Um, and because those c are encoded within the genome of the bacteria, when the bacteria replicates, all of their daughter cells also have that protection. So it's actually this inherited um, immune system or adaptive immune system. So it's very cool, um, and it is natural in that regard. And basically, back in 2012, two um, very important papers came out, the first being by Jennifer Duadna and um, Emmanuel Carpentier, showing that they were able to harness that naturally occurring mechanism that is in bacteria and be able to use it to actually specifically edit and change DNA of, of, of a bacterial genome like they wanted to. Um, that was work that came out of Berkeley, and then shortly thereafter, there was work that came out of the Broad Institute, which is um, a collaboration between MIT and Harvard, and Feng Shang was there able to show that um, they could also use that same sort of technique to then alter the DNA of eukaryotes, which are cells that would make up humans or mammals or more sort of evolved um, species. And CRISPR is often talked about as being particularly powerful when used in combination with a phenomenon called a gene drive. Yes. Can you explain what a gene drive is? Yeah. So, and also just to like kind of broaden it. So obviously, um, these applications in, in, in the biomedical field are really exciting and important. Um, but CRISPR is obviously being applied to and thought about in a variety of fields, one being agriculture. So that would be the production of new traits in certain crops. Um, and then because, again, of this ease of use and the low cost, it is also now m moving into places where it would have been, again, like genetic engineering would have been cost prohibitive. So public health and, and environmental conservation. Um, and partly what is allowing people to think about this is that there's also these potential to basically gene edit wild species. Um, and that is in part through the production of what's called a CRISPR-based gene drive. And so a gene drive um, basically ensures that um, it's a genetic engineering technique where you express sort of the CRISPR machinery, so the guide RNA and the Cas9 in an organism, so that when they mate with a wild organism, that offspring, when it inherits a the wild gene from its wild parents, the CRISPR machinery it's inherited from its gene drive parent then goes and makes that edit in the wild gene. So you get a 100% inheritance of a desired trait in the offspring. And so normally, if you were to release just a genetically modified organism into the wild, it would mate, only 50% of its offspring would inherit that, that desired change, and eventually natural selection would push it out um, of the wild. A gene drive overrules natural selection to push a desired gene trait through 100% of a population of a species. Um, and if and it also can do that even if the trait is not desirable to the species survival. So it can push things like sterility or things that would make it less fit. And in that way, you can also suppress a species using a gene drive and releasing gene drive bearing organisms to the point that you could theoretically drive a species to extinction. So what would this look like on the ground brought to bear on, say, malaria? Yeah, so malaria um, applications are probably the most um, mature that are being explored right now. And so in that case, um, the Nopheles mosquito species are, are what transmit malaria from human to human. And um, Target Malaria, which is a large consortium of international researchers largely backed by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, 
um, is really putting a huge amount of funding back to develop behind developing um, these CRISPR-based gene drives that would be expressed by an Anopheles mosquito that would force the mosquito to become infertile. Um, and so the idea there is that by simply releasing a few individuals of these mosquitoes, you could s- suppress or even drive it to extinction an entire species of mosquitoes that carries malaria and effectively eliminate um, the disease. So who is developing those technologies currently? That's largely being developed right now by, um, like I mentioned, Target Malaria, which has um, about $75 million from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation and also has, I believe it's a $30 million grant from Open Philanthropy um, to to develop the technology um, literally in the lab. So they just came out with a paper late in September, um, a group from Imperial College London, um, which has backing from several different funders, but one of them being Target Malaria, where they show that in a lab they can now they now have a gene drive mosquito um, that causes infertility in females. Um, they're able to collapse the population within eleven generations, um, and it's pretty astounding because that means now the technology is is there and possible um, to be possible to be used. Wow. That's amazing, thinking that CRISPR was only discovered, really, by human beings about five years ago, and we're already at the stage where this could be deployed, it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, relatively so we, we knew about CRISPR working in bacteria well into oh, like the 80s, okay. but yes, it was only designed as a tool um, about, yeah, six years ago, first was published. So it's moving very, very, very um, rapidly. You've talked also about how this technology is making concrete questions that had been the province of armchair philosophy for mm-hmm. many centuries. Mm-hmm. So do you think that cases like um, cases like this one raise questions about, say, um, utilitarianism versus a kind of more right-centered approach? Um, I know you've, you work extensively with, with bioethicists who are thinking about this question. Um. Yeah, I mean, I think going back even to how you introduced the topic, um, it's so highly complex on so many different levels. So obviously the technology itself is really complex. Um, If you're altering ecosystems, um, there's obviously all these components that need to be thought about um, and different things about food networks and how that would impact other species um, and ecosystem services. But the philosophical and ethical questions are also just as complex and deep, um, you know. And I think that the malaria example is, a, is an interesting example. Of course, it's, I want to also say it's not the only example. Um, so there's also people exploring these technologies um, using a gene drive or not. Um, so there's ideas to use gene drives to eliminate um, invasive species from threatened ecosystems and eliminate them. Um, in New Zealand, it's sort of being explored Um in certain ways and on certain island populations where they have invasive rodents that are killing off a lot of um, endemic bird populations. Um, And then there's also people discussing gene drives, or sorry, excuse me, CRISPR, um, without a gene drive in a way that you could help make certain species more resilient. Um, So if you have, for example, a coral species that's um, under threat from bleaching, um, and we were to Researchers will be able to identify certain mutations that allow them to sustain higher sea temperatures or raising acidification in the ocean. You could use CRISPR to induce those mutations and allow for a coral that would be more um, sort of hardy in in our changing in our changing world. Um, and so those are questions are kind of different because in a way, those are saving. There's sort of a restorative justice issue there. It's about sort of fixing human-inflicted damage to ecosystems. Um, But the malaria question or questions for public health when you're literally pitting the idea of driving um, a species to extinction in order to save millions of human lives. I mean, almost 500,000 people a year die of malaria, most of whom are children under the age of five. Um, That becomes very complicated. And so this really does, um, and something I'm really adamant about is this goes well beyond just using expertise and intellect. This is about sort of really heart-centered emotional thinking about what is important to our world, what kind of future are we trying to create, um, and what do our relationships look like with other humans and with the other species that we share our, our planet with. 
It's also interesting in that it gets at questions of human hubris in that there have certainly been, I know, other attempts not using necessarily gene editing technologies, but uh, using more brutal methods, perhaps one could say, to eliminate species for various reasons or to take out invasive species that then have dramatic effects that mankind never predicted um, and perhaps would regret having taken the action in the first place could we have known what would happen thereafter. Mm-hmm. And so so is is this something that people are concerned about? Like what what if this were to be used in the wild to take out mosquitoes, what could go wrong? Yeah, I mean I do think, like you said, um, there's been many lessons learned from histories where you know, humans thinking that we kind of knew it all and then causing more harm than than good in the end, specifically with ecosystem management issues sometimes. Um, and so I do think there's a there's an awareness of sort of paying attention to that kind of hubris. And obviously, there's a lot of calls for humility. Um, but at the same time, I mean, there is still definitely these sort of engineering mentalities um, that I do witness where we, th- you know, people think that we can figure this out. And if we don't know yet, we'll figure it out and, and everything will be fine. And on the other hand, too, I think another thing, a complicated thing is, is, for example, there's also people talking about, and this might be true, that, you know, using a gene drive to eliminate an invasive species or an invasive rodent, for example, could actually be much more humane than sort of the poisons and trappings and sort of culling that occurs now. And so um, there's a lot of layers to these questions and, and um, likely not one right answer. <laughs> which I think is actually sort of the crux of it, this is really not a black or white issue. Um, and people want it to be because that's a simpler way to kind of get around it. But something I really strive to do, and I think we have to do with this, is really stay in that gray area um, and be okay and comfortable there to really explore this to the depth that it needs to be. How did you come to focus on, <laughs> on CRISPR? And become an expert in this area. Um, yeah, it's been, a, I have to say, it's been a, CRISPR's moved fast, and so has my pivot in this world, because it's been a wild couple of years. Um, I have a, I mean, I have a, I have a PhD in molecular biology, so I studied, um, I studied basically in the biomedical space, I studied vascular systems in mammals, um, trying to figure out how we could make blood vessels more robust um, in situations like stroke and certain blindnesses. Um, so I was, you know, at medical centers doing that kind of work, and that's what brought me to Yale initially as well as a postdoctoral fellow in the Department of Cardiology, still studying blood vessels. Um, very heart-centered. <laughs> but um, And it was really sort of uh, when I was in the lab, I did start to feel a bit conf- constrained and sort of removed from some of the larger issues that were happening um, in our world. And so I started just exploring sort of other things that made me, that I was interested in and that I really cared about, and the environment was one thing. Um, And so I started hanging out a lot at Yale School of Forestry, going to talks. Um, At that same time, CRISPR had kind of just sort of come to the the surface. Um, People were using it in our lab. Um, As a tool, I was starting to work with people to try and create a mouse model for disease um, using CRISPR, so I was obviously well aware of it. What I was less aware of at that time were these proposed applications for um, the environment. And as I sort of learned more about CRISPR-based gene drives and how people were thinking about this um, technology in that space, and to be fully honest, it was really this moment of like, like, wow, that is so exciting. This could be um, such an important tool to solve some of the issues we're facing at the same time. Holy crap, this is also so scary. And if it's not done well... We could literally, like, destroy our natural world. Um, and I think it was that. That was a real, like, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. And it was, I, I pretty sure immediately I just grabbed on that. And I thought, this is a place that I can contribute. Um, and I can contribute using my scientific background. I can contribute using my really, uh, my own personal really strong ethos of how I feel about nature and how I relate to nature. Um, and and sort of try and be part of the solution of, of making sure we steer these technologies appropriately. Um, and so that's where um, we hosted. I got in front of the right people. I was able to get funding to host this Editing Nature Summit in April 2017, which is sort of the launch of these discussions um, that brought together a very interdisciplinary group to sort of start talking about this issue. You know, and the summit is really what led to um, this science paper that has just been published, um, which really culminates um, in a lot of the ideas we have about how these technologies should be used. What is it, do you think, about gene editing technologies that feels so different mm-hmm. um, than other technologies? Because you've talked about we, we're a species that from the dawn yeah. of humankind, we've intervened in nature. Yeah. But, it, but something about gene editing technologies kind of 
yeah. has the capacity to hit you like a ton of bricks and kind of disturbs people spiritually in a way that other interventions don't seem to. What do you think it is about yeah. that? Yeah, so I obviously don't have an answer, full answer to that, because it's um, something I actually think about a lot, because there is something different about this. Um, ideas that I play around with, I think, um, well, for one thing, it's we're, we're messing with DNA, right? So um, that is in itself sort of can be held as something sacred in some ways, right? This is the code of life. And so I think the idea that CRISPR, unlike traditional breeding, even like pre sort of like ge- genetic engineering techniques, like CRISPR is so precise in the changes that we're making. So if you think about bringing back this idea of hubris, like here we are making literally decisions at the single base pair level in DNA to make changes. And so I think there's something there about how um, targeted it is. Um, and then, I mean, I have some wonky ideas, but sometimes I think, you know, as we move into a more sort of secular world, perhaps the DNA, our DNA is kind of like um, filling in ideas about how we kind of would have made have thought about the soul of something, you know, like this is the code of, of life. This is what makes things come into being. And here we are as humans, not only changing the DNA of our own species, but changing the DNA of other things that other species that we share a planet with. And so... Um, I think there can be a feeling of it being a gross overstep. Um, and I and I encounter it. I mean, when I talk to people about this work, I can see people literally hold their hearts because it feels like this deep sort of um, – it's, it's almost too much. Like it feels like a, um, there's something so vulnerable there about changing DNA. Yeah, it's almost beyond human comprehension in a way that we're capable of this. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because, you know, artificial intelligence, for example, gets a lot of coverage about, like, what's the future going to look like and how is it going to be if we have robots that can think. And in the same, I I put these new genetic and biotechnology um, innovations sort of at the same level because if we start changing the DNA of literally, like, every single thing on our planet, I mean, that also is going to make for a very different future. And whose future are we creating? Whose vision of that? To that question, whose future are we creating, (laughs) one of the outcomes, of many outcomes of the Editing Nature at Yale Summit that you hosted was to inspire a new paper that you've recently written that came out in November 2018, which is focused, I know this is a question that you're very interested in, on who gets to make the decisions about whether and how CRISPR is deployed in the field and what is the process by which those decisions are made. And I know you've um, you've said a little bit today and you've written previously about how it's really important that these decisions are made by the collective group of, of, of people and potentially more than just people, life forms, animals as well perhaps. Um, we'd love to hear about that. And not just the narrow few people who have the money to develop it or who have the decision-making power. Um, and, and in this recent paper, on which you're the lead author, you call for a new international body to oversee the development of CRISPR and related technologies. Mm-hmm. Will you describe um, how are these technologies governed and regulated currently, mm-hmm. um, if at all? And what is your vision for, for this new system? Yeah, and, and before I go on, I do want to specify that our paper really um, specifically only focuses on environmental applications of CRISPR, so um, and actually gene editing or genetic engineering more broadly. Um, so we are not really looking at governance of, of human therapies or agriculture, just to make that um, as we've seen today, just clear. the environmental applications yeah. <laughs> alone is a is a massive, massive yeah, field. and it has its own unique considerations that obviously you know. Human applications aren't really considering the you know ecological impacts, for example. So it did it did need it. We we felt that it needed its own attention, um, and as I mentioned already, a lot of the human applications were getting a lot of attention, less so the environmental. So that was also um, was impetus for this. Um, but yes, in this in this paper, um, a real motivating force, as you mentioned, was ensuring that the voices of many and not a few. Um, steer this technology for the very reason that it will have, it could have such profound impacts on on the future of our planet. And to me, that was an issue of justice, um, that many have, have a right to sort of figure out what that future looks like. Um, I also see it as a really exciting opportunity that this technology affords that because it is so transformative, maybe this does allow us to create new methods of how we're going to use technologies and who gets to, to decide upon them. Um, and to that means um, what we are proposing 
um, is a situation where where it's really more of a bottom-up approach to decision-making um, so that for any proposal looking to use um, genetic, genetic engineering in the wild, um, obviously with the main focus on CRISPR, CRISPR-based gene drives, um, that there would be a locally-based deliberation process um, that would include local populations um, of people and communities that would be the first to be impacted, um, as well as bringing in global expertise into that into that discussion. Because currently, um, in the space of the environmental field, there really is um, no agreed upon guidelines uh, for these technologies. Um, we're seeing a major void in global governance, um, partly because it's just moving so fast, and secondly, because it's really a very new issue. Um, before now, you know, when we looked at genetically modified organisms, they were normally for agricultural and um, applications, and the major focus would have been on containment, how to contain those those crops um, that have been modified so as not to impact the wild. Here, um, we're in a situation where we're, you know, researchers are developing technologies to specifically impact the wild and to spread through the wild. And so it is sort of this new new space we're looking at. Um, and so really this paper was to fill that void and to fill that void was through this idea of a locally based deliberation but that, that had some sort of level of global coordination um, for several reasons. One, these, these organisms would likely cross international borders um, and spread so you cannot not have sort of global implications um, and sort of things thought about. And um, secondly, we felt that a global coordinating body would also help to strengthen locally-based deliberations by providing frameworks for deliberation, by connecting local communities from around the world to learn from their experiences, to report on deliberative outcomes, um, to uh, monitor sort of technology. So another thing we call for is a database to be formed that would sort of be a way to sort of know what sort of proposals are in, are in process. Um, and then to also be able to report on these things to have um, an impact on global regulation and, and governance. And what, so what would community approval, let's say, if we're thinking specifically on the ground, do you have, um, do you kind of envision a specific case of what it would look like? Would everyone vote and agree? Mm -hmm. Would it depend? Would there be kind of local experts? Or would you improvise based on the community's needs? Yeah, so I, I'm glad you used that last word of um we, we hope not to improvise based on the community's needs, but I think something that's very important um, that also makes this technology unique is that it's so highly context-dependent. Um, so it's going to be context-dependent depending on what species is being altered, how it's being altered, what ecosystem it would be introduced to, what the, what the reasoning for using that technology is, whether it's for human health or for the environment. And so, again, that's why we felt like it could not be a top-down approach. It has to be this sort of decentralized, bottom-up approach so it can account for each of these different contexts. Um, and so that's, again, where the local engagement becomes so important. Um, for, of course, this justice issue that I think impacted communities have a right to have a decision-making authority um, if it's going if they are going to be the first to feel either the risks or benefits of that decision, but also for practical matters as well. Um, you know, we know historically that when local communities aren't involved in sort of environmental decision-making or even public health decision-making, really simple things can, can get overlooked. So, and historically know that when local communities aren't um, sort of involved in, in either public health or environmental decision-making, um, certain interventions could be very ineffective. Uh, one example is, and I can't remember the exact um, location of this, but basically if, if bed nets are the wrong color in a certain nations, they won't be used because they're reminiscent of, um, of funeral shrouds. And so there's a real practical need to include local communities in how these technologies are developed, um, as well as also in... Um, understanding of local ecosystems that will go can be oftentimes much more rich and informed um, than what we know from scientific literature. Um, and so so that's that's again why it needs to be this locally based operation. Um, how decisions will be made on the ground, I think is a question that we we have posed in this paper and we hope to sort of work out moving forward. Um, is Like you said, does that become a vote, a community-wide vote? Are there representatives that sort of um, are then sort of taking on decision-making authority? Um, obviously, we will our intention is to make this as democratic and representative as possible. And that is a value that is really upheld in this organization we're calling for. Um, and I hope that the decision making will reflect that. Yeah, I mean, what one of the things I find so exciting about this work is that, at least in my understanding, 
a lot of the debate around gene editing um, and the ethics of it has been um, kind of dichotomized into, on the one hand, the Times published this long piece in March of 2018, basically warning people about how easy it is to um, use CRISPR basically in home labs, and Mm -hmm. they called it biohacking. Mm -hmm. And then you had biohackers saying, wait, but this is democracy in action. This is open access. This is what we want. Precisely what we don't want is an elite of technocrats steering this stuff. But of course, I mean, as your proposal demonstrates, that's a very impoverished way of thinking about it, that it's either we have this completely decentralized... Yeah, free-for-all. <laughs> exactly. Or we we have rule by a few. Um, so anyway, yeah, I mean, I just... Um, and I'm I'm just struck by that in your work. And, and um, it's a little bit frightening to even realize how my own thinking had been kind of thinking of it in this either or without um, um, trying to envision, like, what a body like the one you're proposing would... Yeah, and I think... Um what you're touching on is kind of getting back to this idea of like, this is a gray area. This is gray, you know, and it's so nuanced. And um, I personally feel that the only, I think the only way we can truly safe this safeguard this technology is to have as many voices as possible at the table. And that doesn't mean that becomes just like anyone willy-nilly can start gene editing anything. I don't actually think that's what would happen, to be honest. I think the more people you have engaged, um, aware, and part of the decision-making, the safer that this technology um, can be. And I think it by doing that, and I should say this, like when we envision our, this process, we envision this occurring as early as possible in a technology's development. So it also ensures that the technology is developed or used or deployed in a way that reflects the needs of many. And so, again, it gets back to this thing of what we've seen historically. And I think we're doing better. But, like, there was no public engagement in the Manhattan Project. Like, no one was, you know, asked whether that was okay. And we've seen that so often in history of these really powerful technologies being, being done behind closed doors. And artificial intelligence, CRISPR geoengineering, like the the profound impacts these technologies will have on our future, business as usual is just not going to work. We have to have another way. And I think that by engaging um, a diverse group of voices is is really our best chance. Um, And let me just say, our best chance to use the technology well, because not using the technology could also prove just as damaging to to our planet. I mean, if if this provides some way of saving coral reefs and we don't use it and we lose all our coral reefs, are we okay with that? You know, or are we okay with 500, almost 500,000 people dying every year in malaria um, when we have a way to change it? So I think it's, it's again, it's, it's really not either or. It's, it's, it's so much more complicated than that. So thinking about other voices, I know you bring up in your piece the example of the invasive species, which you referenced earlier in this conversation, too, using CRISPR in a gene drive to potentially eradicate some of these non-native predators on the island of New Zealand mm-hmm. to try to protect the biodiversity there, where they've had some um, you know, very extreme attempts at culling and killing mm-hmm. off the, the non-native um, mammals that have inhabited the island. And now I think about using CRISPR, and I know that – I'm curious, like in, in an example like that, if this was up for discussion, who are the voices or some examples of the voices, I should say, who would be brought to the table? And I know this, this is particularly relevant in this discussion that Lindsay and I were reading in advance about um, a controversy that erupted in New Zealand recently with some of these CRISPR researchers who um, had spoken to local people there who then later on felt like they had not been consulted perhaps early enough in the process of developing the technology. Yeah. So I think you're um, you're probably alluding to the Maori the Maori, who yes. are the indigenous um, groups in New Zealand. And um, I think it's been a little, I think, firstly, I think that that controversy has, people have apologized, and I think they're working through it. Um, but again, that was issues of sort of miscommunication between technology developers and the Maori. Um, I think New Zealand's an interesting example because, and I, I'm in no way expert, so please, this is me just from what I've read as well and talking to some people from the country, um, that... Um, the Maori actually have a very, quite a strong voice in governance um, 
on the island. And that's actually what's been um, an interesting thing that's happened about, I think it was two years ago, where through negotiations um, over ownership of um, a sacred river in New Zealand held sacred by the Maori, the Wanganui River, um, that was that river has now been given legal personhood um, status in in New Zealand legislation, um, meaning that any decision about the river has to be approved by the river. And obviously, um, in the way we communicate as humans, rivers don't really have voice. And so to do that, they've established um, sort of human custodians that will speak on behalf of, of the river. And so that was something that was very exciting to me. It's not a new idea. Legal rights for nature was something that came out sort of in the 1970s. Um, Christopher Stone had a had a seminal piece that called for called "Do Trees Have Standing?" Um, that called for sort of this idea of thinking about rights rights of nature, um, which isn't that wild when you think about, for example, women didn't have legal rights as persons um, for a long time, and that had to be changed, and we seem to be able to manage that. So giving rights to the non-human is um, not entirely impossible, and as we're seeing in New Zealand, it's happening. And so for me, um, if we're going to talk about diverse voices, um, and we do make mention that that, are, that that includes historically marginalized voices, so the voices of indigenous communities, um, the voices of women, children, um, um, ethnic minorities, even non-scientists in these in these conversations. Um, I thought that that should also expand and include the voice of of the non-human species that share our planet. Um, and so I, I'm, we're trying to think about how to sort of incorporate lessons learned from legal rights given to, to rivers and other ecosystems um, and how that can be incorporated into this decision making through custodial um, sort of human proxies that would speak on behalf of the species or ecosystem under consideration. Do you see, I mean, it's so fascinating because I guess, do you see a tension between that stewardship approach where we stop thinking of the environment purely as a resource. And by environment here, I'm also thinking about non-human animals. And on the other hand, back to the mosquito point, the immense difference we can make in lives lost and preserved in our own species by tinkering with the environment. So do you see what I'm getting at? It's Obviously, there's no answer yeah. to this, but it's it's interesting. It's the, this question of the environment having a voice that we want to air yeah. and we want to refine this um, arguably kind of impoverished, unsustainable view of nature as our tool. Mm -hmm. um, so, but, I mean, from my personal standpoint, I think that the only way we can make responsible decisions about this technology is if we do move away from that utilitarian mindset. Because in that case, I don't think we will have the humility to make the proper decision. That's my personal opinion. Um, and so I think that is that requires, and we actually say this in, in our paper, requires respect for this idea of interconnectedness of our planet. It requires respect for both other humans and other viewpoints as well as the non-human. Um, and I think that by embodying that sort of um, idea, embodying that relationship, that doesn't necessarily mean we don't use the technology. It just might mean we use it in different ways. So if we're thinking about using this for public health to save human life, again, this shouldn't be an either or of we have to drive a species extinct in order to save you know millions of people. Um, it may be that we still use gene editing or a gene drive, and, and this is possible. There's technology being developed in this way as well that just impairs the mosquito's ability to transmit the malaria but allows them to continue to thrive and be part of of the ecosystems they're part of, while still saving, you know, millions of lives, and so um, I until I, I think it's just so important that we see it all as the same. And I think if we still keep separating human health from environmental health, we are not going to be able to do this in the way use this in the way it should be. It's also an interesting topic because it gets at the question too of really what is natural and what yeah. is nature versus humans, of course, being part of nature. Yeah. But, you know, and, and and even when you were describing at the start of the conversation what CRISPR is, like, is it natural or is it not natural? <laughs> and then that gets into regulatory questions, too, of, like, what does it mean to be genetically modified? Mm -hmm. And that um, 
I'm curious, like, like how, how do you think that genetically modified should be defined? Well, oh, gosh. I mean, I don't know. I, I don't actually know if I know quite yet how I even feel about that. Um, you know, because there's these arguments that it's really sort of this, it, and you could ex- explain it this way. There's this continuum, right? So you could also say selective breeding for certain traits, even though it's much less specific and you're not sort of like tailoring genomes in the same way, is, you know, caught forcing evolution in a certain direction of a of a domesticated crop. And so in the end, like, it has been modified to to sort of um, appeal to human desire. Um, GMOs historically, obviously, are these ideas of transgenic approaches where um, where basically it was always involved sort of the introduction of foreign DNA from a different species into another species. And so I think there was something there, too, that people felt like, again, there was sort of this idea of messing with the sacred in a way that's not right. Um, what's interesting about CRISPR gene editing is you could use CRISPR gene editing to um, to rewrite a genetic code so that it basically expresses what might be a naturally occurring mutation that provides drought resistance, for example, in, in a crop. And so then the question is, like, yes, you use this method to get to that final product, but the final product might li- not look any different than something you could also find having not having just used selective breeding. Um, and so that's where there is sort of these discussions happening about how that will be defined, and that is informing regulatory um, decision-making. So in Europe, it looks as though CRISPR gene-edited crops will be regulated as a GMO. And in the U.S., it's looking like CRISPR gene-edited crops will not be regulated as a GMO. And so that, um, again, causes very differences in how that would look for the consumer and sort of um, how different countries are thinking about these things or, or regions. Um, but back to the question about natural, which is something that I think a lot about, and we talked a lot about at the summit as well, um, what is natural and and does that even matter? Because can we even define what natural means? And I have to sort of share, I think, sort of my own personal environmental or personal ethic on technology is I really don't see, you know, these technologies aren't just like dropping from the sky out of nowhere. Um, they're products of human ingenuity and creativity. And so in a way, I see them as this continuation of evolution. Um, and in that respect, um, there is a naturalness to that, right? Because humans have evolved over millennia and we have this amazing brain that we can come up with these tools, whether it was to, you know, use fire or CRISPR. We've done this throughout human history and I see it as this continued evolution and I see it, um, if we keep seeing it as separate, I think that that also falls into this idea of humans being separate from non-human nature, Right. So it's I think it is all about like encompassing humans, non-human species and technology and sort of one large um, in our one beautiful planet that we share. That's really fascinating. It reminds me of um, studies have come out in the last few years about octopuses. Mm -hmm. You might be familiar with scientists have found that octopuses edit their own RNA to produce proteins that are not encoded into their DNA. And this seems, from the studies I've read, to be particularly pronounced in in octopuses that display very uh, neurologically complex Mm -hmm. behaviors. And so in a way, as I was reading this and thinking about it in advance of our interview, it's almost as if the octopuses, in addition to independently having evolved minds and circulatory systems and so forth, have independently evolved their own type of CRISPR, (laughs) if you will. (laughs) Okay. I didn't know about that. I love that. (laughs) I also love octopuses. (laughs) As do we. Yes. Um, well, yeah. So, and I think that's this, it is like, it's all this idea of evolving, um, to thrive. Right. And so, um, again, I don't think that separates, if anything, that makes humans and non-humans even more close together. As long as the difference is, as long as we use sort of our humility and consciousness to ensure that we don't, you know, wipe out all the other species that need to share our planet with us. On the subject of, um, what the governmental body might look like. What do you think about um, – th- th- so there's been a lot of concern about, for instance, these um, databases of um, biodata basically in China where officials are collecting biometric imprints from citizens in a way that, for instance, in the U.S. Um, is illegal unless there's a specific warrant. Um, and there's been kind of alarm around um, regulating 
are interventions of nature um, here, while elsewhere we don't have those kinds of that kind of oversight. So I'm just curious how you think about about that um, and how it would impact um, the construction of the body, um, what the UN's role might be. Yeah, so just to give it some context now um, so that listeners have an idea of what sort of the current global governance situation is, um, basically there isn't one. Um, so there is some global policy being written now by um, the Convention on Biological Diversity, which is a convention based out of the UN that has member states um, that are trying to write policy um, within some of their pre-existing protocols to address these technologies. Um, the International Union for the Conservation of Nature is also trying to is in the process of writing sort of policy recommendations that would steer how these technologies are used for the very reason, like I already mentioned, the fact that um, a release in one location could have global impacts given that these te- these organisms are designed um, or could be designed to spread quite far and wide. Um, why we that is why we call for this sort of um, what we call a global coordinating body that can help sort of ensure that there is global awareness and um, an idea of sort of what's happening on the ground in all these different locations where where these technologies are being proposed. Um, in the paper, we recommend that that could be, that this body could fall under sort of um, the jurisdictions or auspices of pre-existing intergovernmental organizations. But it was important for us, for example, that it cannot just be under, say, the WHO or just under um, the UN Environmental Program in that these technologies ha- span both human and environmental health, and we wouldn't want deliberations to be skewed one way or the other. Um, and really, actually, what I also envision for this body is that it is, like, small, nimble, and new and easy to kind of move and and mobilize. Um, and the idea again is that this isn't a top-down traditional top-down approach that just brings in a ton of diverse stakeholders to have these high-level top-down discussions. This is about having really rich, deep deliberation on a local level um, that will be diverse and informed, um, but having this sort of nimble network of a coordinating body that will help ensure, firstly, that all those deliberations are supported and follow important frameworks for deliberation, and also so to connect sort of different nations in decision-making. For example, if New Zealand is thinking about using a CRISPR-based gene drive or some genetic strategy to eliminate an invasive possum from Australia, which is held sacred by certain Aboriginal groups in Australia, Australia has a right to be involved in decisions about something that could have impacts on their nation if that organism were to be transported out of New Zealand. Um, and so again, we hope that this coordinating body can help coordinate those sorts of diverse geographies um, to help minimize geopolitical threats, which is also equally important. You've you've spent obviously a lot of time talking to people from different cultures and professions around not enough. I'm hoping stuff. to more. Yeah, more than most of us. <laughs> okay. Um, so we're curious. Also, what are some of the the, the tensions that you've encountered, um, perspective wise? Between you were talking also about what it's like for you, a scientist, to be coming at this, and and what impacted your decision to um, not go full throttle into just the science of the stuff, but to integrate, um, to think about it on a more macro ethical level. Um, but yeah, we're curious about um, whether you've seen kind of fault lines in in the different parties that you've been talking to, um, and whether you've been struck by that. By I mean, there's obviously fault lines right now. Um, we're seeing huge debates um, and pretty heated debate um, on certain environmental groups that are adamantly opposed to the release of a gene drive versus certain global health groups that are obviously very supportive of it because of the benefit to human health. So there's sort of those simplistic, um, not simplistic, but a pretty sort of either-or situation. Um, But what I actually, what I really strive for when, I strive for this when I facilitate conversations around these, these technologies, I strive for this even when I have conversations one-on-one with individuals is that um, people approach this with their full humanity. 
that this is not an issue to be left to the intellect, that our hearts and our emotions have every right and our value systems have a right to these to these conversations, in part because this technology, as, as it stands now, holds so much uncertainty. And when you have uncertainty of what the risks are, what the benefits are, we employ our values to sort of fulfill what we're okay with, what level of risk we're willing to take, how we feel about technology, how we feel about nature, um, to sort of fulfill that deliberative process. And so in that way, it is, it is so important that people come in their totality to these sorts of discussions. And that's something, again, that we will um, really be striving to, to nurture um, in any sort of deliberative process. Well, as one of the many animals on this planet, I'm really relieved that someone with your level of thoughtfulness and expertise on this topic is focused on making sure these technologies are used responsibly. For, for both Lindsay and me and for listeners, what are two books that you've read that have influenced how you think about not just the topic of CRISPR, but broadly this very, this very large topic that you're, that you're focused on? Um, I would have to say one of the most important books that I've read um, along this journey is um, called Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. I read it um, sort of just as I was about to transition out of the lab and into sort of this more socially faced um, position. And her writings um, really, I mean, it was like they spoke to my soul. And they, she talks a lot about... Um, our relationship with the non-human. She talks about um, our, our responsibility in this life. Um, we have a responsibility to use the gifts that we have to make it a better place. That we need to sh- to do that is actually showing gratitude to use those gifts. Um, and and it had a very profound impact on me and helping me to sort of envision how I was going to contribute to our to our future. Um, that being said, I do spend a lot of time thinking about the future and how to create it. And so sometimes I need to spend a little time thinking about the past and the histories that inform the present. Um, and so a book that's actually been very informative for that, um, in that respect for me that I just read, which I really liked, was the Wizard called The Wizard and the Prophet um, by Charles Mann. And it really is this amazing um, story about two men, um, one who is in sort of the, you know, the Green Revolution, and the other who was um, a really strong environmentalist, um, and sort of how, again, um, value systems shape technology, and how science alone is not going to solve our current issues. Dr. Natalie Koffler, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. It was a great conversation. Thank you, too, to our wonderful producer, Ryan McAvoy, and the Yale Broadcast Studio, and to the Yale Human Nature Lab for the support to make this episode possible. We would love it if you would subscribe to When We Talk About Animals and leave us a review on Yale University's iTunes or SoundCloud. Thanks for listening.